Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast. We're glad to have you with us yet again, and it's another hot summer day here in Connecticut. I know what you people in the South are thinking. You don't know what hot is. Let me show you what hot is. Well, I'll take your word for it. We uh, we don't need to actually experience it directly. We'll, we'll just imagine what it's like to be in Louisiana in the middle of July. But anyway, we here we are, and we're glad to be with you once again. I'm C.R. Wiley, the senior pastor for the, of this, uh, the Presbyterian Church of Manchester, and I've written a bunch of stuff. And Tom, tell us about you. Tom Price, systematic theologian, Christian ethicist, teaching uh, both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And I did grow up in the South, and this is still a warm day, you know. <laughs> As it strangely is a very humid state, so it, it, it has a lot of similarities. It's not Carolina or, yeah, Louisiana. But we, we do feel um, the pain. <laughs> <laughs> Glenn. And, and I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of European history at Central Connecticut State University, senior fellow at Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and I head up a ministry called Every Square Inch Ministries. All right, great stuff. Well, it's your day today, Glenn, but before we let you launch us on the, su- on the subject of the day, we just want to thank everybody for their marvelous support of our show uh, through the Indiegogo campaign. We, we know that uh, a lot of folks out there contributed to the, the campaign and made it a great success, and we're very grateful. And uh, we'll let you know uh, in the near future about the, the upcoming developments with the, with the show because of the funds that we have that we can, can initiate. And we also want to make sure we thank all the folks who sponsor us or, or are members of the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network and designate our show as the show that they'd like to support. So again, thank you for all you do. Uh, it, it makes it possible for us not to, to have to fund this out of uh, Glenn's retirement fund. <laughs> <laughs> and we are grateful. <laughs> That's right. That's it. So, Glenn, it's your day today. So, what are we talking about? Okay, there was an article that was published in Touchstone that was recently popped up again online uh, back in May 2005 called Of Weeds and Fairy Tales um, by Vegan Goroyan. Um, he is, was a professor, uh, Orthodox uh, theologian, and gardener. And what he says, he opens up the the title of Weeds and Fairy Tales. He opens up with uh, the statement that if you're going to write a good article on gardening, you have to address weeds. Because weeds are a constant problem, constant threat, if you will, in gardening. And so what he wanted to write about was what he calls the moral imagination. And he uses the analogy of the weeds that come in. Uh, in our culture, the weeds our culture presents that undermine the idea of the moral imagination. And he spends a lot of time talking about a lot of these concepts. What is the imagination? Why it's important? What is the moral imagination? What are weeds and so on? And I thought what I would do is just walk through a couple of the key ideas here. And um, I have a strange feeling that you two will have ideas that you would want to contribute to the discussion. So let's start off um, with a discussion of, well, I've explained the weeds part of it, but he says of weeds and fairy tales. Why fairy tales? What he says is, our society is failing to cultivate the moral imagination, in part at least, because very often the stories we live by, the stories we read ourselves or read to our children, 
the stories we watch on television or at the movies, are not stories that grow the moral imagination, but stories that crowd it out. Others have testified to the lively manner in which the traditional myths and fairy tales feed and nurture the moral imagination, especially in the young. But not exclusively the young, for they were invented for the entertainment and edification of adults. It's one of the things we often forget about fairy tales, that they weren't really originally written for children. And he goes on to discuss some more of this, but then he has to get into the entire issue of what is the imagination and what specifically does he mean by the moral imagination. Um, and uh, he quotes uh, Irving Babbitt, who was a Harvard professor, uh, who wrote a study called Literature in the American College. And what he says is the human imagination, quote, reaches out and seizes likenesses and analogies that establish relation and unity in a world of meaning. In other words, imagination is the self's process of finding direction and purpose in life by making metaphors from remembered experiences to understand present experience. It is not an instinct, but an attribute and an expression of our freedom, passion, and reason. He spends a good amount of time talking about reason here, um, reason's relationship to the imagination. Uh, he says, reason, basically, the argument is reason is really good for solving factual problems, um, uh, theoretical issues of living, and so on. But what reason cannot get you to are issues um, of the meaning of life, of purpose in life, uh, those sorts of things. And that's the role of the imagination. The imagination and reason work hand in hand to take the experiences that we have to take our factual understandings of the world and so on. And then as the quote I just read said, using metaphors and analogies to go from the things that we see and the facts and so on to find these deeper meanings and purposes around us. Um, you yeah. can't, you, you frankly can't get to meaning or purpose using the scientific method. Yeah. The thing I think that, that alarms people about this is the, the sense that this takes us into the arbitrary that, you know, if we, if we lose some kind of connection to reason, imagination is just a sort of a place for fancy. Now the, the term moral imagination brings to mind our friends over at the imaginative conservative and Russell Kirk and people like that. In fact, last summer I was with Brad Berzer at the Academy of philosophy and letters, and he actually delivered a talk on Babbitt. So uh, he got into some of these very things when he was talking about Babbitt. But I guess, uh, you know, when I, when I think about Russell Kirk or my friend Brad Beerser or a number of other people that I would call imaginative conservatives, I don't think about people who are out of touch with reality. I think of people who are actually in touch with reality at a deeper level. Yeah, and, and what you're referring to, the idea of imagination unmoored from reason, imagination sort of unconnected with the real world or with real world problems or anything like that, this sort of free-floating kind of thing. Uh, escapist type stuff is actually the first of the, we the weeds. Oh, okay. Okay. That so I'm getting about that crowd out the moral imagination. Okay. <laughs> the, the proper moral imagination is built on or built off of perhaps reason. As, um, I, well, again, a quote life is a dynamic process in which reason and imagination are integrated. 
thought based solely in sense demands empirical verification and is unable to attain, quote, satisfying or satisfactory conclusions about the spiritual origins or ends of human life, said Santayana in Poetry and Religion. This is where imagination comes in. For imagination furnaces, furnishes and supplies to religion and morality those larger ideas and images which human beings need in order to envision an encompassing meaning and purpose for their lives. So in other words, reason and imagination have to be working together here. But you have to go beyond pure reason to get to these issues of purpose, meaning, and all of those sorts of things. And actually, even uh, according to uh, Santayana, uh, even to issues of uh, religion, um, spiritual origins, all of those kinds of things. Because again, those are just simply not amenable to uh, scientific uh, verification, empirical observation, or anything of the sort. Yeah, we've, we've kind of gone down this road before when we've talked about ratio and intellectum, that sort of different ways that we, we, we conceive of reason. You know, uh, ratio is, I think, the thing that most people associate with reason today. Mm-hmm. It's sort of, you know, you know, sort of logic, you know, sort of kind of getting from point A to point B, you know, uh, mm-hmm. you know, using a syllogism or, you know, evidence or what have you. Whereas uh, intellectum is this idea that uh, we can kind of take it in at a glance, that there's a kind of understanding that's, in, that's intuited from the, the glance. But I think that maybe one of the things that I'm, I'm hearing here is that there is an active role for the imagination in this. It's not just a receiving. Right. Yeah. And that, that's what, he's, that's what the, the article is arguing. You know, imagination actually referred to the process of creating images, images in the mind, which is why it's connected so closely to story, why it's connected so closely to fairy tales, for example, and things like that. It fairy tales to icon. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And actually, he talks about icons as well. Yeah, yeah. But, but the idea is that you are... You are creating, um, you know, the medieval use of the word imagination, imaginatio, um, refers to the process of creating mental images, mental pictures, things like that. So it has this sense of, again, connection with story and things like that. But also, since it involves the creation of the images, it's not strictly imitative. It's not strictly something that comes from empirical observations or anything like that. It's taking those and bringing them further to look for something deeper and something that goes beyond the merely empirical. Right, right. And he's gonna get into what this has to do with morality in a minute, but I wanted to pause here to see if you had uh, ideas you wanted to bring in at this point. Well, I mean, I think it's one of the things that, uh, you know, the people that are very attracted to retrieving the imaginative in the right way. There's a wrong way of the imagination, and that's the you know the purely constructive. Um, that's I think what what um, you know I think that's that that's what Calvin meant by the idol making factory of our our imaginative sure. reason. Um, but I didn't think that it, that's that excludes um, the ability and the God endowed. Um, creaturely gift to be able to move beyond, as Charles Taylor said, the end of our nose. He said, reason can get us to the end of our nose. <laughs> um, 
but it has to be, we have to be reasoning about something. And it is at that place at which um, the imagination is connected to, to the rational. Um, another way of looking at it could be the way in which the, the true, the beautiful, truth, beauty, and goodness integrate. Because the imaginative is, is dealing with that, especially the, the, that place right where beauty, truth, and goodness sort of coalesce um, and and provide a holistic understanding of rationality. Um, I mean, similar to what Chesterton, you know, talked about the romance of orthodoxy. I mean, I I think he's on to that same thing. Um, The way in which, you you know, you end up mad if you end up being the person of pure rationality, right? Because it, it, it has lost that wider dynamic of truth that, um, that, that uh, I think an integrated vision with imagination, um, you know, the ethics of elf land, for example. Right. right. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's a very imaginative way of putting yeah. it. You know, yeah. I, th- I think, um, you know, a couple of other famous essays come to mind. One, of course, is Tolkien's mm-hmm. on fairy stories. I yes. suppose that, that he gets into that. But then there's the dish, uh, A Dish of Orts by MacDonald, which mm-hmm. is another... I don't know if it's if a dish of orts is a collection of essays or a dish of orts is the essay, but he does. McDonald does address this very theme uh, mm. of the nature of the imagination and how it works, and it sounds like he's on the same page, uh, mm. you know, with with this uh, with this essay. Mm. Yeah, I I found the discussion of the relationship between reason and imagination really intriguing. Uh, particularly as someone who absolutely loves Tolkien's writing, what you see there is simultaneously a huge effort of reason because the the world is so well developed, so internally consistent uh, on on multiple multiple levels. It is philosophically rich, all of these kinds of things, and yet it's a work of imagination. Mm. Right. Right. So it, it is the way Tolkien's philosophy, his way of understanding the world and everything else, is expressed and worked out imaginatively in the story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and of course, he makes, he goes to, to I think, uh, great, he, he makes a great effort to, to, to demonstrate that fantasy is actually, in a curious way, based on reality. It right. wouldn't work without reality. Mm-hmm. You've got to have a given world in order to have a secondary world. Mm. Yeah. And, well, in an essay I wrote a while ago on, on image of God and imagination, you can make the argument, if you follow through on Tolkien, Lewis, Dorothy Sears, and others, that the act that is most pure as a creative act in imitation of God is the kind of um, mythopoeic fantasy that Tolkien writes. Yeah. Just as God spoke the world into existence, in a sense, Tolkien spoke Middle-earth into existence. Right, mm. right. Well, he, he mentions in that essay that story is a kind of spell. Well, he actually plays with the word spell. When you think of the word spell, I cast a spell, I spelled a word. <laughs> it's, just, it's the same kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Now, um, the essay goes on to specify what he means by moral imagination. Okay, good. Um, And he connects this in with uh, Edmund Burke, who's the guy who first used that phrase. 
But what he says is the moral imagination is the distinctively human power to conceive of men and women as moral beings, that is, as persons, not things or animals whose value to us is their usefulness. Hmm. It's the process by which the self makes metaphors out of images recorded by the senses and stored in memory, which then are employed to find and suppose moral correspondences in experience. So in other words, exactly the same way that we use the imagination to create, well, images of the world to find meaning, purpose, and things like that, we also use our experiences in the world and our reasoning based on those experiences to create a moral vision for the world, to understand good and evil, right and wrong, uh, virtue and vice, all of those kinds of things. So the moral imagination is the particular use of the faculty of imagination to, well, as he says, to conceive of men and women as moral beings, as, as persons, as opposed to just things. Yeah, I, I, that's great. It makes me wonder about our tendency, though, to theologize abstractly. I think, it, I think it's a marvelous ability to do that. But um, when we look at the corpus of the Bible, you know, the body of this, of what we've been given, um, you know, that's a, that's a small percentage <laughs> of what we have to work with. You know, mostly what we have is stories mm -hmm. and uh, poetry, some history. Um, and then we have, uh, you know, well, you, you get the point. I guess, I guess the thing that I'm, I'm wondering about is like when I was in when I was uh, in my first graduate program. I I think I'm like a lot of people. I I had this idea that you know Paul was like uh, you know in the, in the epistles was like the the top of the heap you know, <laughs> and then came the gospels, uh, and then we kind of went down from there, <laughs> and uh, you know you get to the Psalms and things like Song of Solomon down at the bottom, <laughs> <laughs> because it wasn't dealing with you know, propositions so much as it was dealing with images. Yeah, which which is the reformed near heresy. <laughs> yeah. I have to put the word near in or we're going <laughs> to... <laughs> so, you know, I had, a, I had a, an interesting experience today speaking to this very thing. Um, I was at lunch. And I went to meet somebody. And before, uh, you know, I got a chance to talk to the waiter and he... And this was an odd thing, you know, I, I don't know if this is something they're, they're telling waiters to do these days or something, but he asked me, what do you do for a living? It's like, okay, well, I'm a, I said, I'm a pastor and an author. And then he lashed onto the author part. He didn't want anything to do with the, with the pastor part. <laughs> then he asked me about what I wrote. And I said, well, I write nonfiction and fiction. He wasn't interested in the nonfiction. He was interested in the fiction. Isn't that, you know, sort of this interesting process, you know, uh, but... It's, I've seen it again and again, this fascination with story. As a preacher, I see it all the time. You know, when I, when I go to the story, everybody goes to the edge of their seat. You know, they want to hear the story. Yeah, well, you know, think about, um, think about how, again, the specific focus on moral imagination. How was that historically developed in children? Think Aesop's fables. Right, right. Their stories. Now they're very simple stories, but they're stories. Sure. Think, um, think Jesus's parables. Think even mythology, because the stories in mythology are designed in part 
to create a context in which you can do moral reasoning, figure out good and evil, right and wrong, those kinds of things. Many myths function that way. Yeah. Well, and, and we've talked before about the economy of biblical stories and how they leave out a great deal of detail that I think a modern writer would be really, it would be impossible for a modern writer to write like, right. <laughs> like that. And, and I think we've talked about this before. There are two reasons for that. One of them is that scripture is clear. What it never does is tell you anything about the inner life of the person because scripture is clear that only God knows that. Yeah. But the other reason, I think, is that it's an invitation to us to ask the question, what was Abraham thinking when he brought Isaac to Mount Moriah? Right. What was Noah thinking? What was he feeling as he built the ark? How were the people around him reacting? Right. It invites us to imaginatively, there's the word again, imaginatively put ourselves into the story and become characters in it. Yeah, we inhabit, in, we in inhabit Noah, that, right. In a no. way that internalizes what's going on here in a, in a totally different way than a pure rationalistic exposition of the text does. Right. Well, and you, you, you had figures like Herder and others, and especially in the, you know, kind of at the roots of the humanities in Germany, talk about the way, you know, the distinction between the factual um, aspects of natural science versus the way in which we, we relate to historical fact. And his, his big thing was empathy, um, the capacity to empathize. And of course, that requires a certain of, uh, amount of imagination. Um, I think we mean something much more than that. Um, I think imagination, theologically considered, um, would be the way in which the whole multi-level picture is able to be held um, within our thought at any given moment. In other words, it's the way in which the, the vertical and the horizontal and all of the rich levels are able to be integrated and conceived and related to. And this is why a bare horizontal historical, for example, is is a flattening of that but so is a bare vertical in which you're only thinking abstract without the revelatory economy and then everything related and i think what imaginative literature does is it keeps that that um, holistic account in place um, where you are relating to things on all those different levels at once now the levels though are real they're not just in our heads well that's so right and so the analogies are real, so that yeah. the, this corresponds to this or bears some resemblance to this because there is a real sense in which it's, it's, it's a real other. ontological rooting to it all, you know, right. that they're analogies not. Uh, uh, when we talk of imagination, we're talking about analog analogy, analogies and, and truly grounded realities. We're not talking about constructs and... Um, um, you know, fabrications. I think that's where most people go when they think. Chris, move about your it. mic a little closer. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> sorry. sorry. <laughs> I think that most people, when they think about analogies today, do think of them as, as constructs. Right. So like, I remember uh, a, a graduate program that I was, uh, that I, that, that uh, I was testing into, they had me uh, take an analogies test, which mm -hmm. I don't know if they do that anymore, but it was a hundred analogies and they got successively, successively more difficult. Yeah, I did. I did pretty well. Uh, I, I suspect that today people would say that 
uh, it would be a uh, just an exercise in sort of a cultural uh, kind of moment, or maybe uh, you know, in other words, it was because I was uh, very much like the people who constructed the test that I got the I got the answers correct, <laughs> rather than yeah. that, that there was a a real <laughs> thing out there that. Uh, I was perceiving. So what was interesting about the test is I got the results. Not only did I get the results, I also got the scoring by major. So this was a test that was administered to people who were going into graduate programs in a range of disciplines, everything from education to, to economics, to philosophy, to, to physics. And it, 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 it fell out exactly the way you would expect. The people who were getting master's degrees in education were at the bottom. <laughs> and the people who were going for master's degrees in physics and philosophy were at the top. Yeah. And then everything kind of just fell out that way. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it was, what, it, what it said to me was is that there is something to analogies. In other, in other words, that they're not just simply constructs, that they really do correspond to, to reality. Yeah, and some people see them better than others. Yeah, yeah. So the uh, the essay actually where where I really where I think we need to go with this is where he he uh, heads in the second half. We we have to lay the foundation of what is the imagination, the moral imagination, and so on. But again, the analogy is that these are there are weeds that come in that crowd out the proper formation of the moral imagination in people today, and that our society, his, his premise is that our society is characterized by stories that do not properly form the moral imagination, but that actually end up being weeds. He identifies three types. I think we can identify a few more. Uh, but the first of these is the one that you already mentioned, Chris. It's what he calls the idyllic imagination, or yeah idyllic imagination, which is this sort of escapist kind of thing that, um, well, as he puts it, um, the self gripped by the idyllic imagination is escapist, not in the sense that it flees its physical surroundings so much as it shirks its civic, social, and moral responsibilities. This is accompanied and reinforced by rejection and rebellion against old dogmas, manners, and mores. The idyllic imagination is, it is in search of emancipation from conventional restraint, constraints. In our democratic and individualistic environment, persons justify this, quote, liberation in the name of self-fulfillment and self-realization, which they believe existing norms and structures inhibit or obstruct. Quite often there is turning to hedonistic imaginings, flagrant sensuality, and explorations of the flesh. These are paths that promise happiness, but more often than not, lead instead to boredom and ennui, or worse, physical and spiritual dissipation. Yeah, I, I can see that. Now, sometimes, though, the good stuff is accused of that. Um, you know, I think of Tolkien in his, uh, you know, essay on fairy stories, where he was accused of, uh, you know, that, uh, that, you know, of escapist literature, that he was uh, writing escapist literature. And then he talks about being a prisoner in a camp and how it's the duty of every prisoner to escape. <laughs> but that's, but that's not the thing that we're talking about here. Right. Yeah. In Tolkien's case, he was actively, number one, actively addressing the great 
philosophical questions that were confronting the world in his day, although he did it in the form of story. But here, what we're talking about are people who flee into some sort of fantasy land world. And, well, I mean, I knew people back when I was in college, I knew people who were really seriously, seriously into Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, right, right. To the degree that one of them told me explicitly he would rather live his life and spend his time in the campaign than in the real world. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> You know, it's, the, and by the way, he was also very much a hedonist and all of the other things that are described here. Right. Because the real world and its constraints, we talked about this in the last show, the idea of liberty being the freedom to operate within proper boundaries. Those proper boundaries in the real world are one of the things that they're trying to escape. Which right. means yeah. they end up in hedonism, why they end up rejecting pietas, their responsibilities, their duties in the world, and all of those sorts of things in the name of some sort of escape. Now we think about this in terms of escape into Middle Earth or you know, fill in your you know, uh, Game of Thrones, fill in whatever fantasy world you want, but it can show up in a lot of other ways as well in the rejection of the norms, the mores, the constraints, the morality of society uh, in the name of just sort of individual fulfillment, self-actualization or whatever. Right. You know, like when I think about my own life as a as a young teenager, I was uh, really drawn into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, comic books, those things. A lot of it uh, had to do with my own artistic bent. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I visual arts, drawing and stuff like that. But also kind of the bleakness of my own personal world, uh, kind of the, dis the despair and so forth. Um, it was about the same time that I became a Christian, and it, and I think uh, that was if that if that hadn't happened, um, would I have become like that kind of person? You know what I'm saying? Um, it's it's like uh, this is a this is a thing that like many medicines in the proper taken in the proper way is a really healthy thing. It can heal, but. Uh, taken in the wrong way can lead to destruction. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think that's the, you know, the, the question is, is always the relation of the imaginative to virtue and vice. I mean, vice, it can end up in curiosity, which is a self-indulgent thing, an escapist thing. Um, virtue, it's tied to hope, you know, and you see this even with Tolkien, right? That this, that it's not an escape into something unrealizable it's actually uh, uh entrance into a hopeful vision that even means we have a part to play in that hopeful vision um i mean you you see this over and over again you know i mean everything almost looks defeated and they're reminded of small forms like friendship and family and the shire right, right. these things have have a transcendental um dimension to them that within the the um the radical limits of, of struggle and and suffering um shows that they have a, a genuine freedom even within that to truthfully enact what they're created to be and what their hopes are aimed to fulfill and i think good imagination tied to that kind of virtue fulfills that kind of um 
you know, um, picture, whereas uh, tied device, it becomes, you know, like you said, detached um, and self-indulgent and idle for that matter. Yeah, yeah. Tolkien, Tolkien says at one point, um, good and evil are not one thing among men and, and something else among elves or dwarves. You know, yeah. it's this idea that there is an absolute, there is good and evil. Right. Right. And, you know, it, it doesn't vary. It, it, it is simply part of the structure of reality. Which was what I was, I was about to, to get at, was the idea that virtue and vice are tied to larger things, yeah. larger realities. Yeah. So we had idyllic. What were, the, what were the other weeds? Now, idyllic is spelled I-D-Y-L-L-I-C. Okay, yeah. yeah. That idol. Idol, um, yeah. The next one is the other idol, the idolatrous imagination. Ah, uh, yeah. Which he sees as being rife in our culture. He comments, the media fixes on false gods whose stories replace the lives of saints and real heroes. One need only look at the popular magazines, MTV, television talk shows, and celebrity channels to understand how pervasive is the idolatrous imagination. Right. You know, and then he, you know, he gives other, other examples of this. The key point here in the idolatrous imagination is you take something that may even be a relative good and try to make it your absolute good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The essence of idolatry is, as Ugoian presents it here. Right. Mm. And so the imagination kind of runs with this, uh, this thing. I remember Chesterton uh, saying something to the effect that, that the problem with uh, sort of the, the maniac is not that he's illogical, but that, but that he takes logic to you know, sort of an, a, a place that it was never intended to go. You know, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's extreme reason. It's, he's so reasonable, he's, he's inhuman. <laughs> yeah. Um, let me give you just another quote here. What idolatry does is to convert its object into an absolute, thereby, thereby destroying the partial good within it and transforming it into a total evil. Idols are both vanities and demons. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that we we can see that all over the place, uh, and it would take a, a lot of weary work to sort of comb it all out. But it, it's all around us. Yeah, and the you know we as Christians we this is kind of odd as Christians we talk about idols periodically, and we usually mean those in sort of a metaphorical sense. If you've actually seen real idolatry, as in worshiping physical statues and things like that. It sort of gives you a different perspective on it. But nonetheless, the way we view it in our culture, where we don't actually have statues that we bow down and worship, um, it really is, you know, I, I think uh, Groyan here does have a really good way of analyzing it. You take something that is a partial good, turn it into an absolute good, destroys whatever is good within it, and it becomes irredeemably evil in a lot of right which which means that you've got to have some larger framework within which to situate things because if everything's a partial good then you've got to have them sort of working off each other there's got to be some kind of way that they relate right and you know again with, with idolatry 
the, the real trick here isn't that you know, what you're doing, the, the, the thing that you're turning into an idol is generally something that is in itself a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, and the, the, the problem is where you absolutize it. And we can see this, I think, in a lot of ways in our contemporary culture. He focuses on celebrity and stuff like that. This was 2005. Um, but there are lots of other things that can be idolized that are not, you know, people, certainly not even things like money or whatever that are the things most people would probably point to. But they're even principles yeah. are good in and of themselves, but when absolutized turn evil. Right. So think right now of, in a, a, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm going to get myself in trouble for saying this, but I think right now things like anti-racism. Right. Anti-racism is a good. Mm-hmm. It is a partial good. It isn't the whole thing. And yet, in many quarters, even within the church, it's been absolutized in a sense that it's turned into an idol. And then that leads to a whole bunch of other kinds of dysfunctions. So not to say that anti-racism is in itself a bad thing, but it becomes a bad thing when it's absolutized, becomes evil. Yeah, any, any ideal... You know, I mean, I, I quoted a couple of that, you know, a week or two ago, uh, Nigel Bigger's quote that uh, more blood has been shed in the name of idealism than anything else. I mean, we're seeing this recently, you know, young people killed in Seattle and different things like this in the name of some ideal. It's because that ideal has been absolutized and disconnected to the infinite source that, that gives it any, any kind of... Um, um, form, shape, and and limit, right? And so, yes, of course, um, being made in the image of God and and being about the the full dignity of all humans should be something the church is always proclaiming. What it shouldn't be doing is only proclaiming that um, Christ, who is all in all, and that Christocentric vision um, allows for, uh, uh, you know, uh, again, um, a lot of space to fully and imaginatively think about all of these other aspects of life that have to do with with what he has who he is and what he's done and and so i mean we have that's why i always say the full vision and so imagination is right at the heart of this because it allows us actually to understand the ways in which that full vision permeates every aspect of, of creaturely existence. And, and I think the imagination has a distinct part to play in that because it is able to hold in place the different layers in which, um, which the full Christian vision um, penetrates all of, of existence. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, our creaturely reality the sacramental reality of things, the way in which they find their fulfillment in Christ and yet have their own distinct part in, in history, um, the way in which the virtues play in this and the way in which you know human dignity plays in this and the way in which the whole of creation is ordered. I mean, all of this has to be held in place. You can't describe those things in the richness of their spiritual character by just describing their natural aspects or merely historical aspects 
Right. Yeah, and, and again, that, that gets to the limitations of reason and the necessity for imagination. Yes, yeah. Um, another example that, uh, that I rather like, John Cleese recently put out on Twitter a recording that he did 30 years ago, and he said, I can't tell whether this was done 30 years ago or 30 minutes ago. <laughs> and it was on um, the, the virtues of extremism. Uh-huh. And uh, what, what he said, in essence, was, you know, the, the real beauty of being an extremist is that no matter what's wrong with the world, you can be mad at somebody else for it. Right. right. <laughs> and, um, you know, you, you are always, you know, he, he didn't put it this way, but basically you're always squeaky clean. So if you're an extremist on the left, and he gives a long list of people that you can blame for all the problems in the world including moderates. Right, right. <laughs> if you're an extremist on the right, you're, you're okay too, because you have a, a list of people you can blame. It's a different list, but other people that you can blame. And he gives a long list of people that extremists on the right blame, including moderates. <laughs> so, I mean, it, you know, it, it, it's vintage John Cleese, but he's, he's making a real point here in that you know, to, to connect it into this idea of the idolatrous imagination, these are people who have taken positions on the left or the right, which may in themselves be good, but have absolutized them to the point that they villainize anybody who is not on their side. Yeah. So we, so we have two form or two weeds. What, what's the third weed? The diabolical imagination. Ah, diabolic imagination. And he says that the interesting thing, one of the interesting things he says about this is that you often end up in the diabolic imagination by going through one of the others. The idyllic imagination fails you. The, you know, the, the idolatrous imagination fails you. So you end up in the diabolic. Um, so this is, he's, this is what he says about that. In one sense, the diabolic imagination is caused by the disenchantment that follows the self's futile chase after happiness through the idyllic and the idolatrous imaginations. Idyllic pursuit of peace, pleasure, or indifference and removal from social responsibility ends in boredom. And by the way, on that, he actually quotes, um, uh, I think it was Crime and Punishment, where he gives an example of someone who is a prime example of this who ends up committing suicide because the world he's filled with only the world is just boring yeah, it reminds <laughs> me of, reminds me of kierkegaard and either or yeah yeah uh, <laughs> like likewise he says the idol inevitably fails to satisfy the soul it cannot fill the soul with meaning or joy there remains only shadows of nothingness the false pleasures of evil the last illusions of the great deceiver. <laughs> I was just, uh, I just finished reading uh, Charles Williams' War in Heaven. Have you guys ever read that? No, I haven't read that one. I think I've read that. It's, it's about the grail. And uh, it's, it's about this very thing. The, the, the evil characters in, the, in the, the book want to control the grail because they, could, they think that it's sort of a passageway to annihilation, but they can use it that way uh, to, to destroy uh, they're obviously incorrect, and the grail uh, is uh, retrieved. Actually, the grail retrieves itself because of the real presence. <laughs> but that, 
that's a, that that whole sequence. It, it was marvelously done, but but it, but this 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 idea that you're getting at, Glenn, of the diabolic, kind of almost like a, I don't know, like a jilted lover or something, or a, you know, uh, unrequited love or something. Something has not happened the way you wanted it to happen or expected it to happen, and so you go from hope to utter despair. Yeah, you see this also in Charles Williams' Descent into Hell. Mm. Okay, I've read that one. There's one character who gives himself over to uh, an affair, sensuality, sexuality, that kind of thing. And in the end, he basically descends down a rope into hell. Wow. From wow. giving himself over to this. That's the idyllic imagination. Right, mm. right. No. Uh, he goes on to say, um, the coordinates that track the fall of the Western self into the diabolic imagination are the loss of the concept of sin and the rise of popular therapeutic justifications and excuses for things that were once thought perverse. Moral norms are redescribed as values relative to self or culture. Human nature is viewed as infinitely malleable and changing. Some go so far as to say it is merely a, um, a social construct or fiction. Good and evil are considered matters of perspective. Mm. It's like so, a typical show for the podcast. We get into this every, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what, what he, yeah, there's a reason why I, when I read this article, I thought, podcast. Right, right. The, right. the you know, the, the, the point here is that if Groyan is right here, our entire culture has given itself over to the diabolical imagination. Um, because, I mean, you know, how many, frankly, sermons do we hear in churches that are essentially a therapeutic gospel? Right. Yeah. The concept of sin has been essentially redefined and, and foreshortened to be only our particular pet peeves. Um, and things that were once universally recognized as sinful are now embraced as a matter of um, individual right, individual choice, individual freedom, that we have no right to say are wrong. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. Our moral imagination has been laid waste by this. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the reasons for the moral imagination being so evacuated is because the religious imagination has been completely severed from. And I think this was something all of those figures, Lewis, Tolkien and the like were very connected to, and I think even the liturgical movement, not in terms of repristination, but in terms of the formative dimensions um, of 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 liturgy and imagination, the way their 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 function within true religion um, has been 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 lost, and, and so that void has been filled with other things, things that have made made ready. A church for the secular rather than the sacred, which which brings up the question of how do you address it? You know, I think the first thing you think of when you think of weeding is pulling weeds, but yeah. maybe that's not the approach. Maybe the maybe the approach is to grow the the good, and yeah. it pre presses out the weeds. Yeah, you you can't do one without the other. Yeah. Now one of one of the things that. You know, if you're trying to eliminate a bad habit, you're never likely to succeed. What you need to do is replace the bad habit with a good habit. Right. Yeah. 
uh, you need to, this is one of the things that you can go all the way back to the Brethren of the Common Life in the 14th century. The Devotio Moderna was built around the concept that you want to root out the vices in your life by replacing the virtues. Right, right. You know, and, and it wasn't new with them. Um, so I, th I think you need to do both. That's actually, you know, he, he goes on to talk about this. And not surprisingly, ultimately, it ends up being talking about it in terms of stories. Right, right. Because I, your imagination is formed more by stories than by reason. Right. But look at what stories are being told. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, 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 we, we raised our kids on sort of traditional fairy tales and things like that. Uh, my daughter, when she was in second grade, uh, was essentially a 19th century romantic. <laughs> but at one point, she was asked in class, the class was asked, would you rather be rich and ugly or poor and beautiful? Everybody in the class said rich and ugly except Elizabeth. <laughs> and the reason why Elizabeth said poor and beautiful is she said, they're always the heroes in the story. Right, right. It's the poor but beautiful young woman who is always the hero of the story. Right. Yeah. Now, I'm not net result that she's studying theology now and mm -hmm. never going to be rich, but that's okay. <laughs> you know, but, but, but the, the, I'm sorry, Elizabeth, if you're listening. Um, <laughs> True. I, ouch. <laughs> but, but, but the point is that it was the stories that shaped her values, shaped her moral imagination, shaped her understanding even of what is possible. Right. I mean, I think, one of the things that I don't want to get lost in this, because I think it's important not to lose, is it's not a pivoting between the, the, the rational and the effective. Um, I think this is what's happening in a lot of neo-Calvinist situations in which the cognitive and intellectual dimensions are basically seen as a, a byproduct of the, the effective and the and, and imaginative read in that light. But what that eliminates is the truly intellectual and contemplative dimensions of faith. What do I mean by that? Those aspects in which we are to lift above the surface and, and the economy and uh, be lifted up into the very, you know, our, our relation with the inner life of God, which, which Christ kind of gives us the invitation. This is eternal life to know this eternal God and his son. Um, so I, I think what we need to do is keep those things in place. And, and so the better way of thinking about a proper view of the imaginative is closer to what classical Christianity understood as the means of grace or the sacramental. Because what that does is holds these things in place, right? It holds the created order not merely as a naturalism or a historicism and the vertical, the relation to God in such a, a full vision that the imaginative is the only way in which we can talk about it. So therefore, when we talk about things like the Eucharist, the, the, you know, the bread and the wine, um, we have to move beyond them being merely physical elements in right. order merely instru instruments, uh, merely only the instruments of, of grace, 
Rather, they are both a full creaturely thing, but also a means of grace. And I think that's what's being captured there. And you're able to hold all that together. Whereas what happens when those things get severed off is you're not able to hold that whole vision of redemptive history and the, the transcendent dimensions in, in their proper balance. Yeah, I actually was just on another podcast with someone, yeah, two-timing. Uh, I was on another podcast with somebody who was an Eastern Orthodox priest. Um, and one of the things that we were talking about is the idea that we have to get beyond just the sacraments to taking a sacramental view of reality. The world, everything in the world around us, it's not all sacraments, but it's all sacramental in the sense that it signposts that point beyond itself. Yeah. This is this issue that we've talked about so many times about the universe having meaning. It's not just fact. Yeah. Okay. And so what we're talking about here is the way we find that meaning, and it is through imagination. Um, imagination is the, the way that we get from mere fact that we learn intellectually to meaning. And like I said, story is a tool to do that. You're bringing up the sacraments, that's another one. We need to see beyond the physical, beyond the bread and the wine, beyond the water, beyond the oil, beyond the whatever, we need to see beyond it to the spiritual realities that it points to because, you know, now that, that's sort of the sacramental imagination rather than the moral imagination, but it's still operating in exactly the same way. Yeah. yeah I, I think that the people who have really done a good job of, of helping me see that very thing over the years have been some of the best writers of fiction that you come across. Yeah. You know, we've talked about the Inklings, but I'm, I, you know, uh, you know, I think uh, there are other people who come, who come to mind. I guess, I guess uh, we're we're getting to a point now where we probably should start bringing it in and wrapping it up. Is there anything that you wanted to say, Tom, as we close? Uh, no, I mean, I think it's it's a it's really fascinating, and I think it it is the the kind of next level step when people often talk about what do we do? Um, you know, one of the things we start to do is to evaluate and analyze from, from our theological vision, not from, from someone else's vision. I mean, notice what a literary critic or a social justice warrior does. They assume a certain vision and they interpret reality and they run with it. Right. I mean, that is the part that is what we're supposed to be doing. The key is we're running with something very unique and very distinct. And so the kind of running we do doesn't parallel what other people do. Imagination is very much at the heart of that. And so imagination helps us communicate this vision beyond the, the kind of surface level that most of the, the contemporary visions work under. And so I do think it's a very, it has a, a very significant role in to explore the way we should um, utilize the imagination, communicate that rich vision that we have, um, is, is, I think, a pressing issue of our moment in time. I, I, I agree. You want to say anything as we wrap up there, Glenn? For me, I am going to once again make an appeal to story, and I want to read a couple more paragraphs out of my essay here. Symbols, allegories, fables, myths, and good stories 
have a special capacity to bring back to life the starved or atrophied moral imagination, to bring again to mind what we once knew. Through dramatic depictions of the struggle between good and evil and the presentation of characters that embody and enact the possibilities therein, moral vision clears. Light comes into our eyes, an illumination from our darkened intellects and a warming of our frozen hearts. Fairy tales are not scientific hypotheses, nor are they practical guides to living. They do something even better, however. They resonate with the deepest qualities of our humanity. They possess the power to draw us into the mystery of morality and virtue. They enable us to envision a world where there are norms and limits and where freedom respects the moral law or pays an especially high price. Fairy tales show us that there is a difference between what is logically possible and what is morally felicitous, between what is rationally doable and what is morally permissible. Um, there are more, this is a great essay, there are more things in it, I'll try to link to it um, with the uh, show notes, but um, I think that, that again, it's, for me, it's an appeal to rediscover story, but rediscover good stories, good literature. And in my case, I gotta say, I'm, I, I'm an early modern historian, I'm a part-time medievalist, I like the old stories. Right, right. So remind us of the name of the article again and the author. Uh, the, the name of the article is Of Weeds and Fairy Tales by Vegan Garoyan uh, from Touchstone. Uh, okay. Originally published May 2005. And well, uh, just uh, put up on the web recently again. Yeah, hopefully we can get a link to that in the show notes. Well, this has been a lot of fun. It's always good to be with you guys. I enjoyed it. And uh, anyway, uh, we hope that you enjoyed it, uh, listeners out there in Pugcast land. <laughs> we appreciate you. Hey, uh, just a couple things as we, cl as we close. Um, we are a part of the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, and we're really glad to be there. And one of the things that they do is uh, they have sponsorships or memberships, I should say. And uh, if you become a member of the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, you can designate the Pugcast as your beneficiary, I guess that's the way you could put it. <laughs> the other thing is that the, the network is having a conference in October, and it's going to be October 1st through the 3rd in Nashville. And our own uh, Glenn Sunshine is going to be speaking at it and on a very esoteric topic, but a good one. <laughs> I know you're looking forward to that, Glenn. But we encourage you to check out the Fight, Laugh, Feasts Network, sign up for the, for the conference, uh, and come and, and be with us. Uh, Glenn will be there, and Tom and I are hoping to be there. And, uh, yeah. uh, you know, if, uh, if everything works out, we will even have some merchandise, uh, <laughs> Pugcast pints and Pugcast shirts and all the rest for you to take and enjoy. Anyway, anything else you guys want to say as we, before we wrap it up? No, this, that, thank you all for listening and uh, all your support. That's right. Well, thanks a lot, folks, and we'll catch you next time on the podcast. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye.